Welcome to the Humanizing Work Show podcast, where we dig into topics large and small related to our mission, making work more fit for humans and all of us humans more capable of doing great work. You can learn more about humanizing work in the Humanizing Work Company at humanizingwork.com. In this episode, Peter and I talk with Nicole Forsyth. I first met Nicole in 2014 when, as a college librarian, she joined an experimental Agile Beyond software course that I ran in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Nicole immediately stood out as a particularly curious, engaged, and quick participant in the course. Once she decided she was in on this Agile thing, Nicole moved fast. The next summer, she joined a Scrum Master Apprenticeship program we did as part of the Iowa Startup Accelerator. She graduated from that program and soon found a Scrum Master and Coach role at one of our software clients. And then in the years since, as an avid learner, Nicole has continued to take on increasing influence and leadership in the Agile coaching space. Most recently, she was director of Agile Coaching at a large electronics retailer, leading a team of coaches there. We had a blast recording this conversation. In it, we discuss a variety of topics, including how work is broken and what to do about it, navigating career transitions, some practical advice for Agile coaches, and what we can learn from the Antarctic explorer, Ernest Shackleton. The conversation was interesting and practical, and I'm really pleased to be able to share it with you. All right, Nicole, welcome to the Humanizing Work Show. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be here. When I met you, um, it's been several years now, um, you were a college librarian, and most recently you were director of Agile Coaching at a major retailer. Tell us about your journey into Agile software development and how that led to you ultimately becoming a guide for others in that space. Mm, I love it. Um, you know, it's an interesting story, Richard, and the, the part you don't know is before you met me, I had 10 years in the nonprofit sector. So I went from nonprofits into libraries, into kind of an interesting tech startup space, worked for, in a software company, and then moved into the Fortune 100. It, it sounds crazy. It sounds a little strange, but I'm the child of entrepreneurs. And the thing that I learned from my parents is that your work and your life are not necessarily separate things. If you work a traditional nine to five job, you're gonna spend way more time with your colleagues and enmeshed in your work than you will with your family, with your friends and with people who you might just sort of freewillingly choose to associate with. So for me, it was always about seeing things that didn't make sense and then feeling sort of like, ah, oh, I gotta do something about that. So, you know, in the nonprofit world, I started out in the criminal justice reform space, trying to help the state of Colorado not privatize its prisons because it was a pretty gross situation happening. And then I was, you know, pretty indignant about women's rights. So I worked for a domestic violence and sexual assault center. And a through line for me has always been technology, right? In both those places, they'd hand me the, you know, the website or the blog or the donor database. You know, and I, ha I had a love of reading and learning, and that's really how I fell into library science. So my degrees in information science and, uh, you know, kind of a bunch of serendipitous jobs kind of led to this path. But there is this real through line of technology, wanting to improve something and following a bliss because knowing, right, you get one shot at life, do something that's interesting and powerful for you. The leap from libraries to agile is I was kind of frustrated as a librarian. I was significantly younger than all my colleagues. But I did have status. I had faculty status in that environment. And I was really sort of troubled by the way kind of faculty can behave in the academic environment as opposed to staff. And so I knew I, I kind of had to get out of there. And some friends of mine came to pick me up one day from lunch. And I'd been sticking post-it notes on the wall when my colleagues made a commitment. And they came to my office and they're like, Nicole, are you running Scrum? And I was like, oh, that word reminds me of my systems analysis class. Like, what is that again? And that's actually, Richard, how I found your Agile Beyond Software class. And I found in it something that helped unlock for me at work stupid stuff. Like I was just always like, ah, this thing at work is so stupid. Why is it this way? Red tape, processes that don't make sense. And I think as soon as I kind of got Agile, I was like, that's it. That's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I don't care if I have to learn about software or retail or big corporate businesses, this is what I want in work. The ability to think, the ability to give back and improve the system. And I just, I fell in love. So that's the arc it's, for me. The, the other arc I noticed, so you mentioned technology as being a through line, yeah. um, but there was a, a real kind of human purpose through line through all of that as well. Mm, absolutely. I'm curious how that through line 
played out as you got into kind of more corporate America? Mm, yeah, I have a I have a purpose for myself, and this emerges from a, a couple um, places. One is a lovely book I read as a librarian about being a better teacher and facilitator, and then another book about the purpose-based economy. It's a little salty, though, and it has a swear word in it, so I don't know if that's allowed, but I'm going to throw it out there. <laughs> My purpose in life is to unfuck work. I'm tired of work being a pain in the ass for myself and people I know, especially for sort of intelligent knowledge workers, right? The people I grew up with, they're all engineers of some stripe now, or college professors, really intelligent people. But work has just been this like kind of drag for so many of us. And I'm like, you know what? Let's do something about it. If it's f-ed up, let's unfuck it. And so I think that purpose for me has as much to do with do you find joy and purpose and value in your work? But also, are you allowed to think? Are you allowed to bring that whole human self to work with you every day? So there you go. That's my purpose. Nicole, you you described this purpose to repair what's broken in work. That's what it is. Thank you, Richard. Uh, I made a bar. Uh, which you, you said more colorfully than I'm willing to, um, which I appreciate. Where do you see indications of that happening now in the world? Where, where are the bright spots that you've seen? And what do those look like? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about how I decide who I want to work for. You know, coming from entrepreneurial parents, it's not been something that, at least yet, I've been willing to take the plunge, though I look at great folks like Richard and Peter and uh, many, many an entrepreneur I know and know that it it can be a little bit different. I think I see some interesting movement in the the B corporations. I look at companies that truly have a, a purpose and, a, you know, many of them, of course, are ones that I I patronize. So Patagonia. I love the company Patagonia. Maybe because I'm a rock climber, they were rock climbers. Uh, Their approach to the world really makes a lot of sense to me and is very purpose-driven. So those are some of the bright spots I see. I think as I move my way through this kind of, at at times, people are like, what is it you do? I, I have no idea what it is you do for a living. It seems like you just talk all day. Agile and product practitioners, and then people in design, data science, and engineering who really have a passion for what they do and want to do it better and a very humanistic approach. Those are the little bright spots for me. You know, certain people I can kind of name off on one hand who I think are leading in a very different way. Uh, So those are some of the bright spots that I see kind of in the world that give me hope for a more humanized work in the future. What's an example of one of those leaders? Yeah, you know, I think back in my last gig, I was very fortunate. We had uh, operations both in Canada and then the U.S. And I think about my analog up in Canada, so a director of Agile Coaching. His name is Marius DeBeer. And he's one of these leaders that has the ability to use common sense, uh, a deep sense of what human beings need in the workplace, and just really lives out that first individuals and interactions over processes and tools I don't know if it's because his background is as an engineer, but he brings a a real rigor to his work. But his work now is all about people, right? Fundamentally people and watching him lead. And I I think, you know, short of Richard, he's one of the mentors in my life who I think has most profoundly changed my life. Everything from talking through, oh, wow, I'm I'm encountering uh, a behavior I've never seen in a set of people. And I think just this real willingness to dive in and and change. Yeah, he's he's one of the one of the ones on my short list that comes to mind as being a truly transformative leader. Uh, I was pretty lucky a few months ago I did a talk with the University of Minnesota Software Process Improvement Network. And it was interesting because the speaker before me talked about an award that they do for people who've really changed software operations. And when they were talking about the award and the criteria, the first thing I thought was Marius and his operation up in Canada. So truly someone who's inspiring and just a new kind of leader, I think. I'll put you on the spot with him and, and see if you can remember a specific instance or situation just that illustrates that level of leadership that you're describing. Yeah, I think, I think it's the candor to tackle things immediately. One thing I've noticed in the corporate world that I I didn't experience in academia or in the nonprofit world or even in startup life is there's sort of this, you have to sit back, you have to strategize. 
I know at the end of the day that politics is just about how we interact together with people, but right, there's the corporate politics that we hear so much about. The ability to take fast action and do something, not just say something, right? As a leader, lots and lots of words can flow out of your mouth, but the actions that you take, and especially when they're fast and decisive, there's not nearly enough of that in the world. So watching Marius do that, I think those signals that are sent through action, not just content and, you know, thinking are very, very powerful. Mm. That's a really interesting one, Nicole, because I think the way people imagine a coach is pretty passive question asker. Mm. And it sounds like you're describing someone who probably had that capability, but also was a more well-rounded leader than just a question asker. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, again, I, I don't I don't know where it comes from in Marius's career, but I I think it's something so much more than coaching. It's it's as much about doing. And it's, sometimes it's about demanding, which sounds a little bit rough, but demanding action, demanding accountability can often be very powerful. Marius took the uh, traditional four stances of agile coaching and given his past experience, broke them out into 12. And so he talks about the 12 stances of Agile coaching, and I, I love the nuance that comes from, you know, thinking about when are you teaching, right? Maybe giving someone a more esoteric theoretical approach or training, which is like hands-on practice with your real work. Thinking about mentoring and how that's different from uh, leading, what he calls it the director stance. Uh, and I felt in my time as a director of coaching that that's where I had a lot more to grow. I think I'm an excellent coach. I think I'm a good question asker. I'm a wonderful collaborator. But when it comes to being a director, making firm decisions and acting in decisive ways, that's that's really where I've had the most growth recently. It's more than being a coach. I think it's being a leader. Mm. There's like this interesting arc where when people are, are kind of new in a job, they get their sense of self-worth. We get our sense of self-worth from executing the job really well, right? Kind of the technical mm. skills around it. And then right. as we move into a management role, we have to learn the coaching side of it. And mm. we've seen that pendulum swing maybe too far sometimes where we see, well, I can't make decisions about the work because now I'm a coach. And it sounds like mm. he just, instead of just swinging the pendulum around, he's learned to balance the needs in the organization for both of those things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I often think great leaders are for sure coaches. But I don't know that coaches are always great leaders, though I'm super proud in, in my last gig to really have, I think, helped a lot of people jump over that line. How do I think of myself not just as a sounding board, but as, as a leader in this space? And it's, it's been fun to watch that and then to have other hierarchical leaders recognize that and say, oh, person X, wow, they really stepped up and they're behaving more like a leader, uh, which is an interesting moment. What's an example of that to illustrate the what that move looks like? I'm thinking of a, a specific individual. I think there's a, a couple things that play into it. One is, especially in the corporate world, right, we've defined job families. We have job descriptions. We have expectations. We have evaluation criteria. We can kind of slot people very tidily and almost at times get that kind of interchangeable cog mentality going on. I think for coaches, there's a shift that happens in the industry for better or worse, right? You're a scrum master and then you're a coach and then maybe, you, you know, you're a director of coaches or something like that. I think uh, the kind of agile coach scrum master thing, I, I think of all of them as coaches, to be honest. I don't love that kind of hierarchy that the industry has put on us. I think it's when you see a coach turn from, yep, I'll help make sure the team is focused and flowing but you can see them thinking more holistically about the people, the team, the problem, the market, the data, the customer. There's a, a different kind of leadership that emerges from that. The only way I really know how to see when it happens is the other leaders around the coach start coming to me and saying, wow, person X has completely changed. You know, before ah, they were kind of a note taker, like whatever magic they did, it was okay but wow, they've really, really stepped up and are behaving differently. I think part of that shift in, in the instance I'm thinking about was also that our team 
of Agile coaches. We were Agile in product practices. We were new. And I think we gave people a little more permission to behave a little differently than you're just a scrum master. You just work for an engineering manager to kind of like, hey, think broadly. Think about the problems. Think about the opportunities. Think about the product. Think about how you coach the organization and the product owner. You know, break out of this kind of engineering-only person who helps people move little stories along the chain. I'm hearing all of this through the lens of the leadership circle for me Mm. because the leadership circle on the creative side of it, there is a whole bunch of really important stuff about building teams and collaborating effectively and mentoring and developing people, very human focused Mm. side of it. And there's a whole other side of it around how we achieve things, which includes things like being purposeful and visionary being strategic, being decisive, actually getting results. And I can see how some coaches really focus on that left-hand human side where they're trying to create Mm -hmm. more human capability, better collaboration, and almost don't make a contribution on the other side. Like, Like they silence that part of themselves that has an opinion and that has a purpose that matters and has good ideas that they feel almost like that. I can't say those because I'm a coach. I can't, that's, I can't take that stance here. So it sounds like mm. your experience of leadership is that when it's really effective at the coach level, at the director level, at, at any level, when it's most effective, we're bringing our whole selves to it and not just the coaching capabilities mm. we have. I love that. I have a little story that I, I think is kind of maybe interesting and, and related to what we're talking about with the move from either being a, you know, kind of scrum master or coach into being a leader. And it's kind of fun because um, real early in my agile career, Richard knew I sort of had an interest in the natural world and growing things. I come from a long line of farmers and spent my whole childhood outside in the mountains of Colorado. And he turned me on to this movement called permaculture, which I think of as agile for the earth and the relationship we have to how we get food and how we live in the natural world. And in permaculture, though there's lots of infighting and debate about the principles, there's a principle that says we are only limited by our creativity, right? There is no limit to what you can do. The limit, the constraint is actually you. It's your mindset. It's your ideas. It's what you can imagine a piece of land or the ecology that you're going to create, the environment you're going to set up. And I think in coaching, that's part of it. I think as a just a straight-up manager and supervisor of other people, when I remember, hey, we're only limited by our own creativity, you think the team is experiencing X or the product group has this and this going on, say something. You want to do something? You want to try something? Just ask, right? I have a rule in my life you should always ask. If there's something you're interested in, ask, because time and time I, again, I, I ask and 9.9 times out of 10, I get it. And I think that there's something to be said there about helping people to break their own mindset, right? As coaches and agilists, we're all about mindset, 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 but we get so limited in our own creativity when it comes to, to things that we see. I think in the corporate world, because we hire people who've had previous experiences that are very like what we think we're looking for. Coaches get very nervous and insecure about coaching a product person who's been a product person for a long time. Maybe they've, maybe the coach themselves has never been a product person. So they're like, oh, I don't have your expertise. I'm not as good as you. I couldn't dare deign to say anything. And there are appropriate moments, right? Like maybe when the product owner's talking to the whole team might not be the best moment to jump in. But as you coach the product owner, To say things like, wow, I I continue to hear from our user experience person or our researcher this and this. Just help help me understand this. And they'll be like, oh. Oh, I'd never even thought about that. Oh, I hadn't connected that. Thank you. So I, I think just recognizing we are only limited by our own creativity and the the mindsets we put around ourselves, I think really contributes to this leadership mindset. And sometimes just helping someone see their own role in a different light is really how you make that power move from just a coach to being more of a leader. I'm sure you went through those stages yourself or some form of them in your own development. It's kind of hard, I think, when we look back on our own career and our own growth, sometimes to pick out specific points where you're like, oh, I changed Mm. how I did things there. I'm wondering if any of those come to mind for you, though, scenarios, situations. I can think of most of mine started with pain (laughs) 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 and the growth came after that. Mm -hmm. 
I have uh, I have some that are more embarrassing than others, but I'll, I'll in the spirit of we all grow through vulnerability. When I got my first, what I call my first big grown-up software job, right? I was working at a smaller sized middleware software company. And wow, I was out of my depth technically. I cannot tell you how much I studied streaming and streaming solutions and bits and bytes and packets. And whew, I was really, really out of my depth. I had a team of 17 people and uh, including a co-founder, someone who'd written this million line code base virtually by himself and then hired some friends. And wow, when I first got there, I called Richard, who, thank you, Richard, helped me get that job. And I was like, Richard, I can't do this job. I don't know why I'm a good fit, but wow, I don't know what they're talking about. And Richard shared with me an experience where he'd helped coach, uh, I believe, were they Italians, Richard? They spoke a different language than you. Yeah, and I realized, Italy, so they spoke Italian and German with each other. They spoke two different languages than me. <laughs> And Richard Richard helped to talk me through how there was no way I was going to become a seasoned Java developer and understand the intricacies of streaming. Just never going to happen, let's be honest about that. But I think the thing I had to do was let go of my need to know everything, right? As a librarian, I fancied myself a journalist. I could learn very quickly. I could pick up things. And I needed to, right, because I'd often be doing instruction in other people's classes, but I think to recognize in myself, I didn't need to have all the answers. And in truly complex and even chaotic situations, the answers will arrive and they'll arrive to the team and to let go of that need to know everything. I see this in coaches again, where they're like, oh, I know I'm supposed to coach the product owner, but I've never been the product owner. And I, I don't really know how to do that. You know, there's, there's certainly skills we can pick up, but I think I think there's as much a mindset about the value that you bring to that situation. And sometimes it's not the value you think for yourself. Mm -hmm. I remember those conversations and particularly I I remember telling you and I can picture a a particular call and I I remember saying (laughs) they, they didn't hire you to be good at the thing they're already good at. Exactly. They hired you to bring something else. So bring that. And you did. Yeah. It's hard. You know, one of the things I think about the profession of coaching, you're different and people often don't really understand what you're there for. Now it's incumbent upon you to help them see what you're there for and how you can help them and how it can change. Um, I, I often feel a great kinship to UX professionals, right? They're the only one on the team often, right? The lone kind of person who has a design background or a taxonomist or an information architect, and I found it's a, it's a great pairing sometimes to find the other people who are slightly different on the team. And as we talk about truly cross-functional teams that have all the skills available real time to get the work done, to just lean into and embrace that diversity on every level, because it, it's actually what makes teams great, is those different skill sets. I think you may have been about to share another example yeah. <laughs> of your own leadership development. Uh, sorry for yeah. interrupting there. It's okay. It's okay. There is something powerful, I think, when the organization elevates you, you know, you get the job as a manager. And I was at a a large Fortune 50 retailer, and I was at a key point where I either had to try to step into management to solve a problem, or maybe I I was part of the problem, so I, I needed to leave. I had never wanted to manage, ever. I was like, management is broken. It's a system of command and control. Nah, I don't ever want any part of that. And I had several mentors who said, Nicole, that is what would make you a fantastic manager. A woman named Abby who took me out to many lunches in downtown Minneapolis and sort of beat away at my own mindset about that. But that moment uh, when they announce you as a manager, I can see the room, I can see the people. And I said, everyone, congratulations. Nicole's going to be the new manager. The power dynamic changes instantly. It is like a light switch that goes off. And I remember a colleague in the room made some sort of joke, like, I think he bowed and said, yes, ma'am, whatever you say, ma'am. And it was funny. It was lighthearted. We all laughed. But power is real. And the moment you are blessed with it, your relationship to people changes. And I think it's worthwhile to not fear it, but I think it's worthwhile to notice it and notice how it has an impact on people. 
sometimes it's helpful to name it, but sometimes you just have to know in the back of your head that there's something a little bit different about you. An engineering manager I worked with once very bluntly said, I have a loaded gun and it's pointed at everyone in the room. If I keep that in my mind that I have a, a level of threat, these people can be like, oh man, I have to please you. Otherwise you might, I, I might lose my income, my livelihood, my support. And for that engineering manager, that, that imagery doesn't work for me personally, but it helps you to remember that, that power really is a powerful thing and it does fundamentally change how you work. So for me, the, the way I've made my peace with it comes from John Smart's book, Sooner Safer Happier. He advises leaders to not call their people direct reports, but to call them direct supports. And the moment I read that, I was like, hmm, could I do that? And I went through and I thought about the people I manage directly. And it was another mindset moment, right? Kind of like when Richard talked me through, Nicole, you don't need to be a Java streaming developer. Oh, my job is to support this person. My job is to bring this person up. And I, I say that now everywhere I go. Uh, I call people my direct supports. It is a fundamentally powerful mindset shift about how you use formal authority and formal power. For me, it's about bigging other people up and supporting coaches and supporting leaders and supporting direct team members. It's not about command and control authority. And that makes being a leader much more palatable for me. Mm. It seems like there's a because of this fear you described, there's a shortage of people really willing to use authority for good mm. in our world Absolutely. and kind of afraid to acknowledge they have it, right. but they still have it. They oh, just yes. don't take up the responsibility that comes with it. So I, I love the mm. way you're talking about this. Yeah. Um, so speaking of kind of how authority works in organizations and how this connects to your larger purpose, I know one of the places you've worked in the past adopted or experimented with holacracy while you were a coach there, which takes a pretty different approach to authority and power. What was that experience like? Yeah, you know, experiencing holacracy from the inside, I think like, I'm, I'm reminded of Nyberg, I can't remember in one of the books where he talks about Kanban and Scrum as a fork and a spoon. Maybe holacracy is a a steak knife. Um, there are parts of Holacracy that have actually come full circle. Interestingly enough, at Best Buy, our Canadian operation was using parts of Holacracy. And I was like, oh, that's a holocratic like, thing you're doing there. So I, I think, like all things, there are tools. And when you're facing a problem, right, hey, I've got to eat some soup. Do I want this spoon or do I want the steak knife? Oh, I need to open a box. Do I want the spoon or the steak knife? Holacracy as a whole system, when you kind of try to rip out everything an organization has been doing and lay something new on, it's it's akin to big bang design or big bang thinking. It, it doesn't always work, right? I think incrementality is how our brains work. We need to iterate, change, learn, understand why we're learning. So from Holacracy, the thing that I love is Holacracy really acknowledges organizational design and structures need to shift. And if only we can get the people in the organization to tell us, hey, what's working, what's not working. And again, this is this is part of power is people often won't tell you, you know what, this isn't working. <laughs> this is horrible. We hate it. It causes extra work. That's uh, so why I love retrospective so much because the opportunity to learn and iterate and change is so vital for organizations. So in Holacracy, the ability to see the organization to intentionally change it, and to be very clear about roles and accountabilities, really, really nice when applied when the organization needs and wants that. The other thing I think Holacracy can bring us to is leveraging their integrated decision-making process. I think when I learned and became a certified Holacracy facilitator, it was very much about kind of the artifacts, processes, what you said, and a lot less about thinking through how might we get everyone's input and perspective to make the best possible decision. I remember in my time in a holacracy, it's like the Dilbert cartoon that we've all seen a hundred billion times that's like, you're gonna be agile, do more work. And by the way, that was your training. There was an engineer in this holocratic meeting who had no training and I was like, you don't get to talk right now. And it just, it was so crushing for him. Like to this day, should I ever see him again? Ian, hello, I want to apologize. 
he hadn't been trained. He didn't know what we were doing. It didn't make any sense to him. And I think, you know, it's just like in, you know, in Scrum, user stories, using a kind of a template that you get burned out on or that feels too rigid. It, it kind of loses the sense making, just like Scrum can, can fall into those traps. Holacracy can fall into those traps too. So there are bits and parts of Holacracy, super valuable. I think I see places where people are iterating into it. As a whole system, anytime you're doing Big Bang, I get a little bit worried unless you're starting up a brand new company because humans have a really hard time with Big Bang change. For listeners who might not be familiar with Holacracy, would you give us kind of just what's the elevator pitch description of how it works, how it's different? Yeah, um, it's been a while since I've been kind of deep down in the trenches. I have this lovely yellow book. I just pulled it off my shelf today. This is my my highlight of books. Holacracy is about organizing fundamentally different by helping people reshape the organization on the fly and name tensions, both bad tensions like, oh, this is horrible and I hate it, but also good tensions, like creative tensions, like, oh, do we do this or do we do this? And so by bubbling up those tensions, very clearly naming our roles and our organizational structure, we can iterate on organizations. Sounds super cool. I think the number of places that I, at least as of the last time I was very active in it, that have implemented it might speak to, I think the implementation is often what gets in the way. Again, it's a big bang, whole system redesign. Uh, Zappos was known in the early days for being a holacracy. I know the David Allen company from uh, David Allen of Getting Things Done was an early booster, but I'm, I'm not quite sure where the movement has gone mm-hmm. since then. Good. I would say that the thing that stood out to me as I read about Holacracy was a very different approach to organizational structure, uh, in addition mm-hmm. to what you've mentioned, where, like, I remember when, when Tony Shea announced that they were going to adopt Holacracy, like, he signed the document, the Holacracy Constitution, and that was his yep. last act that he could take as a single individual. From then on, the org structure mm-hmm. was different. Yeah, there is this moment where... You know, the the CEO or the ultimate kind of traditional hierarchical person actually gives over their authority to holacracy. I think that's hard. I think human beings have not maybe yet had enough experience doing that to always be comfortable with it right away. But I think it's a powerful, I mean, my goodness, talk about a leadership signal. If someone signs over their authority into this, I guess, system, that would that's a pretty powerful leadership signal. Mm-hmm. You've been a coach in basically the the full extreme of organization sizes Mm. uh, from, I think, three-person startup to Fortune 50 and in between. How is coaching different in different scales of organizations? I think a lot about the division of labor. So naturally, in a smaller organization, there's a little more Jack, Jill of all trades. In big organizations, right, we we have to narrow people a fair amount. So I think in larger organizations, you're, you're going to see this in engineering, design, data science, and product as well. It's narrower and narrower slices of focus. Sometimes that's lovely and freeing, right? You have a little something you do that's part of a big whole. That's amazing. It's a great form of constraint. Sometimes it's kind of painful, like, oh, I can see this is going on, but there's nothing I can do about it. These 87,000 other people need to, to do something about it. I think in smaller companies, there's also, as learned through experimentation with early stage startups, you don't have to be as formal, right? Trying to apply Scrum when you're just getting started, there's a lot you can benefit from, but you you can relax a little bit more with the form um, because your feedback loops and your learning is so very tight. You know, both are joyful. I think there are different kinds of people that thrive. And some people thrive in all the environments. So I myself went into corporate life because I had a brief brush with consulting and only corporations were hiring me. And I was like, oh, man, if I'm going to be a good coach, I need to learn about them. So that's actually, after thinking I would never work for a big corporation, how I find myself in the big corporate world. What advice do you have for new Agile coaches? Oh, there's just so many forms. I really think... It, it sounds almost too simple to be true, but individuals and interactions, it's absolutely everything. 
We are fundamentally working with people. This is fundamentally about the interaction of personality, ideas, concepts, cultures, egos. And at the end of the day, if you're focused on the people and you really care about them, right? That's the thing I take from uh, Kim Scott's radical candor work. You have to really care. And I know it's hard. And I know this comes from a position of tremendous privilege. If you don't care, you really should leave. It's a disservice to you and it's a disservice to those around you. You will never be led astray by caring about the people. I've uh, recently really gotten into studying Ernest Shackleton, in part because they just found his ship, which got crushed by the ice in 1914 or 15 and sank to the bottom of the Antarctic Ocean. And wow, he is a powerful and interesting uh, leader to study. And it was all about the people for him as well. In fact, I I think of him as a tremendous agilist, uh, responding to chaos and complexity in some really fascinating ways. So if you can if you can live in that space, you're there's no way you can go wrong. It's not about story points and the minutia of Scrum. It is fundamentally about improving the way we work on all levels. I know it sounds very simple, but I've I've never gone wrong by focusing on the people. I'm sure in your role, you've come across other scrum masters, other coaches in the organization that had that real process focus. We certainly have lots of clients that we run into scrum masters and, and they really pride themselves on their knowledge of the tools, the number of certifications and different frameworks that they hold. And, and I think that a lot of times they see that as the value they bring is expertise in a process mm. or expertise in a tool. When you come across somebody like that, that is working in a department where you're a leader, how do you work with them? Sometimes, again, sometimes I think it's called for. When I think about Kinevin and I think about chaos, complexity, complicated and clear problems, I think that, that Scrum and process lives in that complicated space. Right? We've kind of figured out how to make a team. We've figured out how to help a team flow work by Scrum or Kanban. And sometimes it's needed. And if they're comfortable there and the team needs them there, it's absolutely wonderful and it's magic. But I think you have to get those things paired up. I, I hope very much that in, uh, in my time at Best Buy, I helped many coaches say, you know what, that's an awesome, powerful bit of complicated and to be honest, sometimes clear work you're doing. That's amazing. But our world is so volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? The VUCA. If you're interested in helping to solve those problems, and you know, if you're finding that your, your defined toolkit of complicated and clear, like knowable process stuff isn't quite enough, I'd encourage you to lean into thinking about complexity. And this is where you're going to have to go off the script a little bit. This is where you're going to have to be uncomfortable. I also think by encouraging people to think about Scrum in particular as a starting place and not an ending place, it helps tremendously. So many coaches, and I certainly had this myself, it's like, I'm marching towards Scrum. I'm going to get to Scrum. I'm going to do Scrum well. I'm going to get to the end. Ah, we're Scrumming. It's not working. <laughs> like, we're not creating more value. It's, oh, no. Oh, no. Was Richard wrong? Like, I, I think I once tweeted something horrible, like, Scrum doesn't work. And Richard was like, hmm. But I, I think if I remind myself and coaches around me that Scrum is a great place to start, we can learn an awful lot from it, but it's not the place to stop. There's, there's never any stopping, right? There's always, always a process of ongoing improvement. So I try to not be hard on those people, just like I wouldn't be hard on an engineer who has a very formalized craft in a complicated space. Like sometimes it's needed, sometimes it's great. Just don't put those people where possible in complexity and chaos, because um, that is usually a recipe for disaster, for sure. Can you connect the dots between that and what you were saying about the importance of caring about the people? Uh, I'm curious, like, for mm -hmm. those coaches, Ooh. I think you can get blinded to what the people on your team need if you're always going mm. in with process tool, process tool. And so when you, yeah. when you encounter that, I'm, I'm curious if there is a connection, if you see mm. one there. Yeah. I, this reminds me of another just powerful learning moment that Richard will probably remember too. I was in uh, my certified Scrum Master training, or maybe it was a CSP 
PO. No, I think it was a CSM. We were building a Lego village. And there was a user story about uh, in the pirate village, there needed to be a sidewalk that connected parts. Mm -hmm. And I was like, great, I'm your sidewalk girl. White post-it notes. Screw everybody else. I'm going to make that. And I just went off the chart. I, I like didn't even pay attention to my team because I was like, it's all about the sidewalk. I am making the sidewalk. And when we, we stopped and debriefed, Richard was like, Nicole, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm making the sidewalk. And he's like, but you, you completely abandoned your team. You know that, right? And I'm like, team shmeem, f*** the team. I got the sidewalk done, <laughs> right? Because I was so focused on what I thought was the right thing to do, which was follow the marching orders, get it done. It's not about other people. And I think when Richard called that out, you know, I was a little, little huffy, like, teams don't matter. But on the other side, teams are the only thing that matters. There are very few instances where the lone person, we just don't live in that world anymore. We have to have teams. We have to have skills. We have to have something that can confront the world. It's not about the sidewalk. It's about the whole. So I think with those coaches, when I see that they're really in a place of, I'm trying to follow the rules. I'm trying to obey. I'm trying to be focused. I'm trying to do the right thing to acknowledge that there's a lot more nuance. What is the right thing? Is the right thing to follow the rules of Scrum? Is the right thing to bring value to the customers? Is the right thing to disrupt, right? That's a powerful, powerful stance we can take as coaches. Uh, so sometimes asking them questions around that can help break up some of that process, real process-heavy mindset. What advice do you have for people who are contemplating a big career or organization transition? Maybe it's scary. Maybe they haven't even talked with anybody about it. What, mm. what would you say to them as someone who's done several of those in your career? Mm. I think back to a young entrepreneur I knew who had been very working class for much of his life, but came from a family of entrepreneurs and was really trying to make the leap from one industry into software. And it didn't work. The startup failed, and it was particularly painful in this young man's life. He had invested everything. Uh, he had moved. He had really put his whole life into this venture. And so he, he went back home to Florida, and he reconsidered and is now a very successful uh, gentleman in a, a different line of work. But I take from him, after really going through uh, some very painful things, he said, you know what? I never fear change. I know it's scary, but it, it's about not being afraid of the change because the change needs to happen. Even if that little inkling is there for you, listening to that voice is actually incredibly powerful. So when I think about that individual not fearing change, and when I think about what it means to welcome changing requirements into your own life, it's the difference between, oh no, I have to deal with this. I hate it. Okay, I'll smile because I'm supposed to. I'm welcoming changing requirements. Like, no, actually, to be like, oh, man, thank you. Like, oh, welcome. Come on in, change. I recently did a, an improv class with a bunch of senior directors who were trying to lead a little bit differently. And we, I'm, I'm not always super big into the improv thing, but we did this exercise where people delivered, like, horrible news. Like, oh, that thing you've been working on for months, no longer funded. And the improv exercise was to thank them for it, to say, oh, thank you for changing my roadmap and intention map completely. Not only am I going to do that, I'm going to change the whole team. And even just that, that little mindset shift of saying thank you and just not fearing change, like feel the fear and then say, hey, you know what? Maybe optimism is called for here. My favorite Shackleton quote of the moment is he says, optimism is true moral courage. I've never been an optimist. I am a salty pessimist by nature, but my father was a tremendous optimist and I can see how my own career, when I've chosen optimism, uh, has really made a difference. When I went to Best Buy, I chose to be a much more positive person in part because my leadership circle told me I was distant. Uh, my reactive tendency is to be very distant. Part of it is I'm a naturally introverted, formerly shy person. And so I leaned into all the things that I was like, I'm not going to plan picnics. I'm not going to do social hours. I'm not going to welcome the new babies. Like, ugh, I don't care. Like, that's, that's women's work. I'm not doing that stuff. I'm getting promoted. And I was like, no, actually, Nicole, that helps you 
to break down the distance piece. And people have responded in tremendous. I think it's actually one of the things I'm most known for at Best Buy. So yeah, don't, don't fear the change. Welcome it. It's telling you something. My experience with the leadership circle is that we take the assessment, we do the work with an eye for how we can be better leaders at work. And then the work that we do impacts us in all areas of our life. And I'm curious how that work on that reactive tendency and shifting into a more creative stance flowed into other areas of your life. It's interesting, Peter. I, I don't know, to be honest. I think, I think I've been so focused on how I could do it at work. It's hard to say. I will say a practice that I picked up from a permaculturist about gratitude, I think has really helped me to think a little differently about my life. Every night uh, at dinner, my family and I talk about something we're thankful for from the day. And, you know, it's a, it's a well-known thing, the gratitude journaling, but doing it in a social setting, I think allows me to ride some of those waves of why I might be distant in my life. You know, I live in a lovely neighborhood with lots of kids and I, I haven't always connected maybe with my neighbors, but when I'm like, oh, I'm so grateful they're here. I'm so grateful they're doing a fire and they invited us that that, I think somehow taking that distance piece and coupling it with a true desire for gratitude because gratitude helps us see abundance, I, I think has, has been a really helpful mm. thing. I think I see that in my personal life from the leadership circle. Yeah. Last question. What do you hope work looks like a generation from now? In thinking about what work might look like a generation from now, my hope is that the tremendous, tremendous human potential for creativity can be fully unleashed. When I think about humanizing work, one of the questions I have, both as a kind of a movement, a concept, you know, the name of your company, I'm like, well, why do we need to humanize it? Like, what's dehumanizing about work? And it's Taylorism, and it's command and control, and it's powers over others, and it's mindsets and situations and environments where we shut ourselves down, right? If we believe that the biggest constraint is our own creativity, our own passion, our own ability to think, I really hope the future of work is able to tap everybody's creativity and everyone is allowed to think and act at work where we get rid of these gateways of only the boss can say what's done or only the product person can make improvements or only the engineers are allowed to work on technology i think there will be a real blending of disciplines and lines and i, I hope at the end of the day people can embrace the meaning that comes from what we're so good at as people which is is truly being creative you know, this reminds me of a conversation I had with my mom on Mother's Day, uh, who's a brilliant thinker. And we were talking about kind of the risks of climate change and, you know, where might this go mm. and who knows. Mm. And um, I said, you know, no matter what happens, I have deep faith in human ingenuity that we'll yeah. probably figure out how to solve it. And she said, really, it feels so intractable. And I said, yeah, but there have been intractable problems that our species has faced over and over and over again. And things that felt intractable, somebody comes with some completely different way of thinking about it and breaks through. And as we've studied creativity, you know, what you're describing there, it's never an individual. It's always mm -hmm. at least a pair. Absolutely. It's frequently a little community that develops around some idea. And so I think not only is it a, a beautiful hope, that we can tap into all that creativity and human ingenuity. But I think it's absolutely needed in our world because the problems are not getting easier to solve. Absolutely. You know, uh, again, since I'm on a big Shackleton kick, I'm, I'm in my fourth audiobook. I listen to Shackleton while I do heavy manual labor in the garden. I mean, the <laughs> things he and his, it was really cold when I started gardening. And uh, my dad, before he passed, was a really getting into Shackleton. So it's a, a lovely way for me to connect with the memory of my father. And it was very cold. I was gardening in full Minnesota hat, parka and everything, setting up my straw bales. The things he and his crew were up against were tremendously large, like just some of the most difficult physical conditions human beings have ever been in, completely isolated. Not only did he get all those men out alive, but they were 
they were really joyful and they talk about this experience as like a peak human experience because the environment he created to allow everybody to learn, to grow, to contribute and to be a part of the solution, it's, it's a tremendous story. And so those are the things I hope for in work is that everyone can, can reach that level of engagement and skin in the game's a little different when your ship's been crushed by the ice, but <laughs> our skin in the game is, uh, Humans on this earth, I think, when we can see those connections, something pretty powerful mm. happens. You mentioned that uh, you aren't naturally optimistic, right? That that's a, a trait that you admire in others, including your father. I'm curious, when you look at big picture things, how do you balance the potential for kind of the crushing realities of what's going on in the world with your hope and your optimism there? For me, I think some of it is just... I don't know. This is a very parental thing to say. I had a physics teacher who said this to me ad nauseum, and you can see I rolled my eyes there. Everything is a choice. How you choose to respond, right? Maybe bad news hits you, right? Like those changing requirements, wherever they may be in your life, in your work, in software and technology. And it's okay. It's okay that it's going to hit you and your brain just is what it is. But you can rewire your brain, right? You can work on your neural circuitry. You can work on how you respond. So maybe it hits me and I'm like, oh no, we're doomed. But that's a choice. It's a choice to let that come out of my mouth. It's a choice to let it enter into my life. And so minding that little gap and then trying to choose the positivity, it's something I'm working on. You know, it's something that I, I admire in others and I'm a big fan of, you know, what you admire in others. There's no reason you can't be it. It's just sometimes might take you a little bit longer to get there if it's not your natural path. I also have to admit, I've seldom seen the naysayers or the pessimists or the really kind of toxic folks. I've seldom seen them make great things, mm. right? You very seldom run into a leader or someone who's done something super profound, who's a hyper negative person. And I, I think there's a correlation there. Nicole, thanks for spending the hour with us. It's been a pleasure to talk with you and there's so much good stuff for people to learn. Thank you. That's wonderful. I really appreciate it. I, I love being part of the humanizing work community and movement. It has, uh, as I've said many times in places before, it's radically changed my life and it is an absolute gift if I can pay that forward and improve lives of others. Nicole, where can people track you down on the socials if they want to get in touch? Yeah. I think LinkedIn is kind of the best place. Uh, I'll be honest, that's where I'm maybe a little more apt to mm -hmm. respond. LinkedIn would be we'll the best drop spot. A, a link to that in the show notes if you want us to. Yeah, please do. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Nicole. If you enjoyed this episode and want more content like this, the best thing you can do is subscribe to the podcast and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also love it if you shared the podcast with friends, family, and coworkers who you think might benefit from learning more about how to make work more fit for humans and humans more capable of doing great work. If you want help humanizing your work, you can find out more about our products and services at humanizingwork.com. We spend so much of our lives working, so let's make that investment meaningful for us and for all the people connected to it.